Memory is a very funny thing. I each, every time before I, hello, hello. Every time before I start a little Dharma talk and I put on my glasses, I, uh, I take them off or I, I take them out of my pocket and I wipe them and, and I remember, it's, it triggers a memory. It's like a, um, it's got a valence to it. It tri- triggers a pleasant memory of having done that over the years, you know, literally every Tuesday. And it often triggers the memory of, of one of our old Sangha members. Her name was Haya. She's still, she's still around. She just lives in Marin. But she, but she brought me some uh, pads for my glasses and maybe even some spray. I don't remember. But now I, when I put on my glasses, I think of Haya and with her big smile. And, and so, there's a, so there's a whole chain reaction to just that experience of wiping my glasses and that's how, kind of how our mind works and, and it puts me in a state of wonder how automatic those little reactions are and how in some ways selfless they are. They just come unbidden. I don't, didn't expect to think of Hey Edge, but there she was in my mind. And it works like that. I was rummaging around my my office yesterday looking for a um, pamphlet that I was going to give to somebody. And I stumbled on this book that, <laughs> believe it or not, I've been looking for for about 20 years. <laughs> I've told people about this book. And every time I've gone to look for it in this morass of Dharma books, I haven't been able to find it. And all of a sudden, yesterday, opening the closet, there was the book. And just like with the glasses, it triggered a whole chain reaction of memories and associations. This book was the first Dharma book that I ever bought. Or maybe it was given to me. But it was 1976. And I was traveling. Uh, this is, I'm not unaware of my privilege after I went to college. I was privileged. I traveled after college. A tremendous p- privilege. I try not to forget that. In fact, while I'm talking about it, for, though, for the white folks of this group, there is a day long that I'll be uh, helping with. Maybe you've already heard about this, but on March 9th, there is going to be a day long that predominantly focuses on white privilege and kind of waking up to that and how that impacts your, the ways you think, your relationships, uh, just the whole social, political, psychological dynamics of this world are so impacted by, by the differentness that people have in terms of privilege. And, and for the white folks, it's been, they've been the most privileged in this culture. And even though in, in the world we're only about 30, less than 30%, 70% of the world is non-white. Uh, but nevertheless, that somehow that kind of dominance. Anyway, I don't want to get into that, but 
but I was privileged to be able to travel and I traveled to to India and when I on my way to India I was in Afghanistan this is 1976 and I was really green and I didn't know anything about Buddha Dharma I had done some transcendental meditation I'd done my mantra and my friends used to come and watch me while I meditated with headphones on and but I, you know, it was just so green and innocent. And, and I met a fellow in Afghanistan who was, um, who I felt this almost like a palpable transmission, a quality of being that I hadn't really experienced in anybody. And he sat down with a, my friend and I in this little cafe. It was like a little tea shop and the ceiling was probably less, it was probably about six feet tall. And we just sat there and drank tea and ate cookies. And he started to talk to me about, about um, the Dharma and about emptiness. And I had a, I had a moment of, of a kind of awakening in his presence. And for the next six months, I thought I was literally going out of my mind. I was going crazy. And, and then at a moment, somewhere down the line, I realized, okay, I'm just going to go crazy. So this was actually the first teaching that I, first time I understood that it, when you accept what you're experiencing, it brings about a cessation of all that reactivity that was actually feeding it, feeding the problem. The going crazy was not being in harmony with the truth. So I said, okay, let myself be, go crazy. And it was amazing. The whole thing just evaporated. Just felt peace. But on my way to that moment of, of cessation, this very compelling fellow who had been in the Peace Corps in Afghanistan and he was back in Afghanistan to do a little pilgrimage before he ordained as a monk in in Nepal in the Tibetan tradition and he said go see the Dalai Lama and I said who's the Dalai Lama I didn't know who the Dalai Lama was I through the years I've joked that he, to me he was the Shmali Lama you know that kind of my heritage came in and I started turning it into Yiddish But my friend and I went to see the Dalai Lama and sure enough, we arrived at the door of his house in Dharamsala and they said, come in. And it turned out that he had just come out of retreat. He had been on a six-week self-retreat and he came out of retreat just to meet some fellow Tibetans who had come down from Ladakh, from up in the north. And we were the beneficiaries of this group of Tibetans uh, and we were able to walk in and I had an audience with the Dalai Lama and I still didn't know who he was really, but I was struck by his sweetness and you know, we did the head touch and we did the, you know, the katak, the little scarf that we shared and, and then I was kind of stunned by the whole thing. But the most important element was that he said, go um, study with this teacher. Said that, and it was one of the, the lamas, one of the geshes, the scholars who he would send all the Westerners to teach. And this it was, his name was Geshe Nagwan Dargbe. And these are his oral teachings. 
which I guess he would repeat. And in that, in the two weeks that I spent sitting with the Geshe, he essentially spent the entire time giving one teaching, which is the initial teaching that is offered uh, to all lay people, all people who are interested in the Dharma, and it's the teaching called, I don't know the Tibetan word, but it's called the four, the four mind-changing reflections. And the four mind-changing reflections, just very briefly, is uh, the f- and these mind-changing reflections are meant to change your mind or turn your mind turning, to turn your mind toward the Dharma, toward the way, toward the way things are, toward truth, not toward a belief system, not toward, but just how to just stop that fighting with reality. You know, getting back to the story of I'm going crazy. How to, how to find the Dharma, how to find the way. And anything other than being in harmony with the way things actually are is not the way. But these, these four mind-changing reflections strike at, the, at four basic areas where we tend to remain confused or um, looking for relief in the wrong, looking for love in all the wrong places. So the first of the mind-changing reflections, and they're really quite obvious intellectually, but, then, but learning to live uh, in harmony with the, with the actual truth of it is another matter. You can hear about it all day, but the, how we live our life is really where the, you know, where the rubber meets the road. And the first mind-changing reflection is that uh, life, um, that this life is incredibly precious. That we have, that the conditions that you have right now with the fact that you're conscious, that you have a body, that you have that the conditions that we find ourselves are rare and precious. And they can easily change. The conditions can easily change. So make something of this life. I don't mean make it meaningful. I mean really seize the beauty, the, the wonder of this, of this life. Speaking of wonder, uh, Sangha member Scott. Where are you, Scott? I'm going to out you right now. Scott, who's been hearing teachings here for a while, was kind enough to bring me a book that was meaningful to him and his family, I guess. And I opened up the page just before we started, and it said, Though we travel the world over to find the beautiful, we must carry it with us or we find it not. From Ralph Waldo Emerson. Whenever I hear Emerson, I'm also reminded of the line that I share a lot here. He says, um, Who you are, shout so loudly, I can't hear what you say. So, about appreciating the preciousness of life and there, it, in the Buddhist tradition it's, it's embellished a little bit or it's elaborated on 
with a description of the, the in Buddhist cosmology that that this it's not just called a, a precious life but it's called a precious human birth and it's and that's it compares a precious human birth to any number of ways you could be born either metaphorically or literally you could be born in a hell realm where there's where there is pain constant pain you could be born in a as an as an uh, kind of animal that's constantly worried about uh, eating or being eaten you can be born in the realm of what's called the realm of the hungry ghosts where the beings are depicted as having little mouths and huge stomachs never satisfied you could be born in the in a realm of barbarians you could be born a human but have no um, have no interest in uh, awakening so many different ways you can be born but to have a precious human birth is one where you actually uh, see you have you don't have an extra an over exaggerated amount of pain nor are you comp- so intoxicated by pleasure that would be a, a deva realm or a celestial realm you, there's just a, the right amount of balance to p- create enough friction for us to to stimulate us to to want to to wake up and that waking up is that is that finding of beauty uh, in this life and and uh, and the cessation of that continual running after beauty but recognizing it as the natural state of our own heart our own being when we let the let the uh, thinking mind that is where most of our suffering is manufactured when that goes into quiescence there's a, there is a beauty that's intrinsic in our nature I think I spoke of it last week as in plain, in plain sight. The, the, the beauty of, uh, the wonder of being in plain sight. But we're so busy um, trying to figure things out or trying to look for the beautiful that we miss. Just as Emerson said, though we travel the world over to find the beautiful, we must carry it with us or we find it not. And so, and the more we look for it, you know, it's somebody used the metaphor. I forgot who it was, that trying to find the beauty or trying to find meaning in life. It's like trying to, uh, it's 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 likened to worrying about um, not being able to sleep. And the more you worry, the harder it is to sleep. So the the finding of the beauty is the giving up. It's the, it's the cessation of, of trying so hard to really enjoy life in joy, just in just being embodied, just finding it in the simplicity of just us being together tonight in plain sight. So the precious human birth gives us this opportunity and to really take it in and it's informed by the second mind-changing reflection that is uh, that this life is and one of the things that makes it precious is it is short it's in fact i brought with me then 
the beautiful passage from the Buddha, thus shall we think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom and a dream. It's so dreamlike, it's so fast. It's, and that's partly why we, we try to find, we want to seize the meaning out of it. But all that seizing, all that seeking, all that, um, just like the Buddha, he said, seeking but not finding the maker of this house. It's, all that trying to enjoy life just misses the natural enjoyment of being, of being conscious. So, the, so one of the reasons you could say that we try so hard is that we don't really want to live in harmony with the fact that it's impermanent. We don't really want to open to that fact. As I've said many times here, the, the Buddha's guru, the Buddha's teacher was impermanence, was death, was change. The thing that turned his mind toward the Dharma, what turned his mind toward the discovery of the beauty of letting go, of letting be, of, of finding the natural happiness of being conscious, what turned his mind was the, the witnessing, the, finally his eyes opened to uh, somebody his own age who was extremely ill to a, an extremely old person, and to a corpse. And we're a little squeamish about talking about sickness and old age and death. It's like we might get infected by it. <laughs> but sickness comes to anyone who has ever been healthy. And aging comes to anyone who's born, and death comes to anyone who's born. As I often share the Wiley's Dictionary definition of birth is the leading cause of death. This is not weird. This is how it is. It should be really normalized. When we lose people, of course our heart aches for the loss. But we shouldn't be so, so shocked or surprised as Jennifer Wellwood put it in her poem called The Dakini Speaks. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings. But please, Let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as if life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us. And she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. 
let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway. The cost is too high, as we've been talking about. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. So what happened for the Buddha when he saw sickness, old age, and death, it said in that moment his enchantment with youth melted away, his pride in youth, his identity with youth. And his, when he saw the, uh, the older person, or when he saw the aging person, his pride in youth, and when he saw the ill person, his pride and enchantment with health. He just saw that it just normalized the fact that people just like ourselves, including ourselves, will become ill. I'm sure to become ill. I can't avoid illness. That, that's the Theravada version. And then his pride or enchantment or his identity with life melted away, with having it go on and on and on. And it is built into our conditioning, very strong conditioning to want to continue our existence. But when the handwriting's on the wall, what is the secret? What is the third noble truth? There is a cessation of this clinging, letting go. Abandoning the cause of increased stress is letting go, is being in harmony with the way things are. Every day in monasteries, some of you have heard this before, but every day in monasteries, um, Theravada monasteries, there is a, a chant, and we do it sometimes here at Mission Dharma. It goes like this. Uh, I'll do the Pali and then chant it in English. It goes... Anicca varasankara upadvaya damino upakituva niruchanti desang upasamo sukho. Here's the English. All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. That the secret to that cessation of stress, of mental stress, is to be in harmony with the truth that things arise and they fade away. That's really the, that's the only difference between an ordinary person and a Buddha. A Buddha knows whatever arises fades away. And of course you're all Buddhas when you know this. So impermanence is a very central reflection that one is encouraged to contemplate every day not to not to color your life in some kind of morbid way oh life is impermanent but to to seize the the beauty of of these precious moments this is a, a kind of a flowery rendition of about impermanence from Jeff Foster, you will lose everything. <laughs> your money, your power, your fame, your success, perhaps even your memories. Your looks will go, loved ones will die, your body will fall apart, 
Everything that seems permanent is impermanent and will be smashed. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Experience will gradually or not so gradually strip away everything that it can strip away. Waking up means facing this reality with open eyes and no longer turning away. But right now, right now, we stand on sacred and holy ground. For that which will be lost has not yet been lost. And realizing this is the key to unspeakable joy. Whoever or whatever your life is right now has not yet been taken away from you. This may sound trivial, obvious, like nothing, but really it is the key to everything. The why and how and wherefore of existence. Impermanence has already rendered everything and everyone around you so deeply holy and significant and worthy of your heartbreaking gratitude. Loss has already transfigured your life into an altar. May it be so. So, turning your life into an altar leads into the next of the mind-changing reflections is that all of your actions, all of your actions produce results. The reality of what we call karma. And the, uh, the radical contribution of the Buddha in terms of the, this law of karma, of cause and effect, that every action produces a result. The Buddha's contribution that, uh, that the fruit of any kind of action, of body, speech, and mind, is determined by the motivation behind the act. And so if, you're at, if, you're, if your actions are motivated by greed or aversion or delusion, they produce uh, unwholesome or unpleasant and painful results. If their actions are motivated by love, by generosity, um, by um, wisdom, they will, they will produce well-being and happiness. But most importantly is that everything you think you do and you say it's planting a seed. And this is an, to me the most, one of the most positive and creative parts of, the, of reality is that every moment is, uh, is a potential seed of some kind of result. And when we are present in our lives, when we have recognized our life as an altar, we are careful not, not tense or fearful. We're care, caring about what we do with our body, speech, and mind. And we, we devote ourselves to planting the seeds from the more time we get up in the morning till the time we go to bed. Planting the seeds that will be of greatest benefit to ourselves and the beings around us. And just one small example of something that I started doing many years ago that I thought at first was just, I borrowed it from, a, from the Tibetan tradition. It was the, was, it was the aspiration, it's called the cultivation of bodhicitta, the aspiration to awaken for the benefit of all beings. That, uh, that um, 
to cultivate this, this, um, this quality of, of, um, of aspiration and awakening. So as part of that simple practice, every time I've sat, and it's now been going on for about 30 years, every time I sit, every time I share, I, I say to myself, may this sitting be for the benefit and welfare of all beings. May whatever I offer tonight or in my life be for the benefit of all beings. May my life be for the benefit of all beings. And when I started doing this, it, was, it just felt like a nice idea. It gave me a pleasant feeling. But the more I did it through the years, when I would come to the point where I said, may my life be a benefit, I increasingly felt like I was taken over by something quite a lot bigger than my own little personal, you know, personal uh, complaints. It somehow made me, uh, it's as though this life really wasn't so much about me anymore. A little thinning of the me and a little more of everyone else. And that wasn't, that wasn't because I was trying to be busy being a, uh, having an altruistic heart. It's because I kept planting that seed. And that seed touched that place in me, that, that unconditional place of goodwill. And so all the concept, any kind of conceptual seed planting that you do that is in harmony with the way, with the way we actually are in our deeper heart, it awakens. It's like it's, it's, it's turning the key to that part of your heart that wants to incline toward uh, being a benefit. And giving yourself over to that, it's, it's really, it's a strange feeling. It, it's as though my life, I've said this before, but my life doesn't even belong to me. There is, I don't even know who to refer to. Other than, you know, other people can refer to me, but I don't know who they're talking about exactly. It's a strange thing. So where was I? Oh, karma. Every moment that we're present, you could call it, a, it's a moment of emptiness. Emptiness is a field of creative possibility. So this is the, what you do here really matters. So to reflect on that. And then the last one, the last mind-turning reflection that had a, um, a big impact on me was that um, it's called reflecting on the defects of samsara. There's a few different ways to look at this one. The defects of samsara is that life is defective. That our life as individuals is defective. Everybody's life is a little bit like, uh, the Buddha called it dukkha, like, and dukkha means a wheel out of round. Everybody's life is marked with some measure of unsatisfactoriness or something that doesn't feel right. And no matter how good you have it, partly because of impermanence, partly because of that we're, we are at the effect of such a sea of conditions, there's always something that's a little off. I know for me, it, there's often, a f uh, I've had, a, like I said, I've gotten to travel, I've had a lot of privilege and comfort, and even the best the best holidays and things are always, they're overrated as a, 
as a cause of real happiness. They just, they leave in their wake a feeling of, okay, that's over. And of course, there's, all, there's the benefit of pleasant memories. That, that's a beautiful thing to be able to have pleasant memories. But there's no experience in this changing world that gives you lasting satisfaction. So it's, it's a little, that's how it is. So to be in harmony with that, with that fact, we stop Fight, we start fighting the fact that there's, un, there's unsatisfactoriness. This is, the, this is a mark of existence. This is one of the three characteristics of existence. Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the last characteristic, it's, it's happening all by itself. It's selfless. I won't get into that tonight so much. So that's one side, defects of samsara. The other side is that um, uh, is the, the use of the word samsara. Samsara is, is the, translated as endless, one, endless running. And the unsatisfactoriness, the defect of endlessly seeking but not finding satisfaction that that in itself is, um, we have to really open to the, to the whole cycle of birth and death, moment to moment, in the little vignettes of our life. It doesn't, uh, it's just endless. And there's a defect in that. We have to wake up out of that idea that something that we do, the place we go, something we become is going to, to give us lasting happiness. The only happiness worth that name is the happiness of being conscious in this moment. Not running from this moment by running after, but by stopping, by just giving it all up. And then see what life wants you to do. For some reason I'm thinking of, I'll end with this, I'm thinking of Dogen. Zen Master Dogen, who said, uh, meditation is, is not a means to enlightenment. It is enlightenment itself. And then he also said, to study the Buddha Dharma, the, the way, is to study our self, which is the self that we create that keeps spinning this world out. He says, to study the Buddha Dharma is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be, to be awakened by the myriad things. In, by awake to every, let everything awaken you. And you don't need, you don't need to keep carrying the burden of that dissatisfied self. It can't be satisfied. It doesn't even exist except as a basket of memories. So be as you are. Who you are. Shout so loudly. I can't hear what you say. So impermanent, right. Preciousness of human birth. Impermanence. Karma. Defects of samsara. Theravada version and then you're free to go. I am sure to become old, I can't avoid aging. I'm sure to become ill, I cannot avoid illness. 
I'm sure to be I'm sure to die I cannot avoid death I must be separated and parted from all that is near and beloved to me I am the owner of my action actions heir of my actions actions are the womb of which I've sprung actions are my relations actions are my protection whatever actions I do wholesome or unwholesome of these I shall become the heir so may we all plant the wholesome seeds of awakening, of goodwill, of non-harming. And may we all um, remember the preciousness of our life and reflect every day on impermanence. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for your generosity. You all know that we depend on your generosity for, to be able to meet. It's a give and take. And... And when you do leave tonight, please help line up the chairs four in a pile against the wall, but not in front of the benches. And just a reminder, if you're interested in, in that um, white and awake week uh, for the white folks, March 9th at the San Francisco Dharma Collective. Also on March 22nd, I'll be doing a day long at Spirit Rock on, uh, I forgot the title. <laughs> but anyway, I'll be there. And what else, Noemi? Somebody left their phone in the bathroom. Anyway, thanks for your practice. May all beings awaken. May we all learn to tolerate the politicians. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.